You're in the water loop. Welcome to Waterloop. I'm Travis. Very excited for this episode to be with Earl Swift. Earl, how are you doing? Doing well, Travis. Thanks for awesome. having me. Awesome. So the reason I, I tracked you down is you wrote this uh, this book here, uh, Chesapeake Requiem, A Year with the Watermen of Vanishing Tangier Island. And uh, it's a, it's an incredible book. It really resonated with me because I'm I'm from Maryland. Uh, I spent 10 years living in Annapolis. I've worked on the, the Chesapeake Bay program cleanup effort out of uh, Annapolis and the EPA office and um, just love crabs, can't get enough crab cakes myself. And uh, so this, it, it really resonated with me. And um, I wondered if you could just kind of tell folks that don't know where Tangier Island is, just kind of in a snapshot. What's what's Tangier Island? Tangier Island is a uh, squiggle of mud and marsh uh, in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay at the bay's widest point. The bay's about 30, 30 miles wide. Um, it's uh, uh, it rises imperceptibly uh, from from the waters surrounding it. Uh, very low lying, essentially treeless, and it's populated by four hundred and sixty men and women, every well, all but a handful of whom can trace their lineage back to the island's original settler who arrived in 1778. And for the better part of its 240-year history, the island has made its living from the waters of the bay. And that bay now threatens to swallow the island up and, and erase or, or bring to an abrupt end that long human habitation there. So you, um, I know you're a longtime uh, reporter with the Virginian Pilot, right? You're a writer for them. And um, so you probably, uh, that's maybe how you cross paths with Tangier or it kind of popped onto your radar and you, it piqued your interest. How did that, how did your, how, is that how it came about or, and how, or how did you kind of get the idea to like, you know what, I want to, I want to write a book and learn more about this place. It, it came in stages. I didn't wake up one morning, uh, burning with curiosity about this, <laughs> this odd little island. Uh, I, uh, I guess the first time uh, uh, I really thought about Tangier as a possible story, uh, although I didn't know what that story would be, was in 1994 when the, the newspaper, the, the Virginian pilot, uh, thought it wise to buy me a sea kayak and let me uh, circumnavigate the Chesapeake Bay for six weeks. On that's, a great, that's a great assignment. <laughs> that was a pretty good assignment. Um, and uh, I guess I was about a week into the trip when I came out of an Ancock Creek one morning in, in the boat and uh, saw offshore uh, a heavily wooded island, uh, pretty small, but but substantial enough that it had a, a, a really dense pine forest on it. And uh, it was a glassy morning, essentially, you know, windless. And I thought, you know, I'm going to detour over there. My charts told me it was a place called Watts Island, which mm. was on habitat. So I paddled out to Watts and about halfway across the wind came up out of the west and what had been a glassy morning turned into a, a pr pretty serious blow. So it took me three hours to, to cross the five miles. Uh, from wow. the Finally got to the island, staggered ashore. Uh, <laughs> and while I was walking the perimeter of the island, looked out to the west and there was a much more substantial island about four miles away with a water tower and a church steeple and clusters of tightly packed houses, uh, all on a wafer of green so thin it looked like the, the buildings were in the water. Mm. And that was my first glimpse of Tangier. It was five years later that the paper uh, got around to sending me there for a story. And uh, after that initial 1999 assignment, I got a, a rapid succession of assignments to go back to the island. And uh, culminating in 2000 in a, a a stay of six weeks on and off with a photographer, a guy named Ian Martin. Uh, you know, and, and the subjects of our stories while we were there varied, but they that six-week trip was concentrated pretty specifically on uh, the terrible irony that this island that had depended on the bay for its sustenance for, you know, at that point, eight generations uh, was now looking at its own demise at the, you know, at those, those very same waters we're going to were threatening to bring its end and uh so that's uh that's kind of a, a brief thumbnail I, after that 2000 trip i i i left 
and I didn't come back. I, uh, I got busy with other stories, started writing books, I got involved in a succession of time-consuming projects, and always, always kind of had Tangier in the back of my mind as a place to revisit, but never got around to it. Um, eventually, my house in, in Norfolk, which was close to the water, uh, started flooding, worse mm -hmm. with each successive astronomical high tide or northeaster. Uh, and uh, and I remember I was a, I was you know thigh deep in water in my basement trying to get the sump pump to kick on during <laughs> one northeaster, uh, and it occurred to me, God, if it's this bad in Norfolk, it's got to be pretty dire out on Little Tangier, and uh, and that kind of planted the seed that I'd, I'd eventually go back. My fiance Amy, uh, really, I have to credit her with with getting me to to turn that inclination into action in the fall of 2015 when I was looking around for a, a new book project. She said, well, you've been talking about Tangier for a long time. Why don't you, why don't you go back there and see what's happening? Mm -hmm. And on uh, and returning was astounded at how much change there had come since 2000. So you say, you know, it's it's written here in the thing, Vanishing Island. You mentioned that, you know, it's getting swallowed up by the bay. A big part of uh, your work here explores the forces uh, that are that are responsible. And that's a big struggle that the residents there are uh, go through is this. Uh, what are the causes? And it seems they feel like it's just erosion. Right. But we know that there's the climate change aspect as well. So what's from the science perspective from all the people you've talked to? What are the forces that are swallowing Tangier? Well, the, the islands uh, suffering from a diabolical one two punch, really. It's uh, the, the lower Chesapeake <clears throat> has some of the highest relative sea level rise on Earth. And uh, and that. That word relative is important because it, in the Chesapeake, not only do you have the water slowly coming up, slowly, but, but at an increasingly fast rate, mm. uh, but you have the land actually subsiding. And, and that's a byproduct of the last ice age. If you, uh, if you picture the Earth's crust as uh, like a, uh, a waterbed, for lack of a better Okay. Uh, and you you picture the ice sheets that covered most of North America uh, back you know fifteen thousand years ago, fifteen to twenty one thousand years ago, as a say a heavy book placed on that waterbed. Uh, the the Earth's surface beneath that ice uh, was pressed downward, uh, and the crust was, and beneath the crust is the mantle, which comprises most of the Earth's mass. A portion of that mantle is viscoelastic, meaning it's goopy, it's gel-like, and and when compressed, behaves like a gel is prone to do. It squirts away from the point of compression. So what you saw was that that uh, where the ice was heaviest up in what's now subarctic Quebec, uh, the ice there was two feet thick, and it, it pressed down on the on the crust, which compressed the mantle, which forced some of that viscoelastic mantle away from leading edge of the ice sheet, which pushed it right into the, what's now the mid-Atlantic states of the United States. And some of the, uh, the, the greatest resulting bulge, you know, the, the, the Earth's crust had to, had to lift to make room for this new mantle, uh, was, was pretty much right where you find Tangier today. Mm. So 11,000 years ago, 15,000 years ago, the bay was high and dry. It was much higher than it is today. Um, because there was so much water locked up in ice sheets, there was a lot less ocean than there is today. And so the bay was a long way from, from the Atlantic. And um, it, uh, it was essentially just a, a, a river valley, the lower Susquehanna, mm. uh, into, into which a, a bunch of tributary streams that we now know, you know, as the, the Nanticoke, the Pocomoke, the Potomac, the, the James, the York, the Rappahannock all flowed. Uh, but um, it was it was far less watery than it is, and uh, and so what's happening is <clears throat> you know the, the about eleven thousand years ago the ice age ended the ice sheets melted that ground up in subarctic Quebec that had been so compressed began to rebound and as it rebounded all of the displaced mantle that had been shoved southward started to ooze its way back home and, and so the 
ground in the mid-Atlantic that had been lifted so high began to subside, and that's been going on for thousands of years and will continue for thousands more. The upshot of which is the ground is falling at about the same rate that the, the water is rising in the lower Chesapeake, and so you have a you have essentially double the problem. Yeah, and sure has no elevation to give up. You know, it's a it's a it's a very low lying place where the the highest point of land on the island is barely five feet, and that's just a solitary knob. Mm. Most of the island fails to clear three feet, and actually, the bulk of it being salt marsh, probably seventy five percent of the island is salt marsh. Floods twice a day, it fails to clear one foot. So this is a pretty amphibious place to live. Yeah. So the people there, you, you know, you mentioned eight generations, they go back. They've really been, and this is another beautiful part of the book, they're, they're used to seeing some of that uh, erosion or some of that subsidence. They're used to seeing parts of the island, parts of the marshes kind of disappearing underwater over time. But I think that they've seen that accelerate the past few decades, um, which is really due to the, the sea level rise part of it kind of increasing. Well, you've got, you know, what, what's <clears throat> much has been made of the fact that, that Tan Sherman, uh, being a conservative bunch and a kind of a literalist uh, Christian bunch, don't much cotton to the scientific explanation for what's happening. Mm. They, for generations, have noticed Tangier getting smaller. And in fact, since 1850, the island has lost two thirds of its area. Uh, and they'll tell you that. The phenomenon of, of land loss began in the Chesapeake long before anyone was talking about, about climate change, which is true enough. I mean, uh, people have been talking sure. about it for, you know, since, since the Civil War, pretty much. Um, what's, uh, what's interesting, though, is, is that or what's, what's at the heart of, of their skepticism, I think, is just that they, they rely on a very anecdotal uh, style of data collection. You know, they go out in their boats every day and they look at the water. And that that doesn't yield a, a, a ready measure for what's, you know, what's unfolding before their eyes. It's, it's really slow. It's really subtle. This is an island that doesn't have hard edges. It's a marsh island. So you, it's not as if you have a yardstick against which you can easily measure the water rising or falling. Uh, you know, it just drowns marsh. And the marsh slowly converts to, to open water. And you really don't, it's not a dramatic process day to day, you know, over the decades, it's incredibly dramatic, but, but it's a sneak up on you kind of problem that they have there. Mm -hmm. And uh, it isn't until you get above the island, go up in a helicopter or a plane, look down on it, compare what you're seeing with photos taken just a few years ago. And you can see that not only is Tangier becoming smaller around its edges, being chipped away, you know, around its perimeter. But it's essentially dissolving from the inside out as well. Uh, what had been, you know, high and dry land, of which there's very little to begin with, is slowly converting to marsh. What had been marsh is slowly converting to mud flat and open water. And uh, and so the island has become much more soupy. Uh, when I was there in 2000, the high tides brought the water up out of the marsh and over the roads and um, and up, you know, around the 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 perimeter of the island, what you see them doing now is bringing water straight up through the ground. It just percolates right up into people's yards. Wow. So it's, it's just become far more porous. Um, you know, what had been fairly solid wetland is now uh, a, a loose macrame uh, dotted with pools of water. Hmm. It's, uh, it looks like lace from the air. Wow. And, and they, I think in the book, they talk about, you know, the waves, right? The wave action being part of what's taking, taking the land away. Sure. Um, so, so not even talking about this subsidence, not definitely not talking about climate change, but the wave action, um, you know, being a big factor for why it's gone. And, and certainly it is. I mean, don't make, there's, there's no doubt that wind driven waves, especially from the West have been, uh, especially rough on the island's shoreline. Uh, but, but those waves have gotten worse over the last century for a reason. Uh, mm. you know, this is not a steady erosion that doesn't change. This, if you were to chart it, it it's not a, a straight diagonal curve across, you know, diagonal line across the chart. This is a parabolic curve. It's gotten a lot worse as time has gone on. Uh, so if you look, look back in the 
in the 18th century when the island was was first uh, settled. There was a little bit of erosion on the west side because you've got a lot of fetch, what mariners call fetch, a lot of open water susceptible to wave buildup. Um, you have a lot of, of winds from the west in both summer and winter. Uh, the predominant winter winds are from the northwest. You've got, you know, you've got 20, 20 miles or more of fetch to the northwest. You've got 30, 40, maybe even 50 miles of fetch to the southwest. So a lot of room for wave action to build up. And um, so I, I have no doubt that in the, in the 18th century, they, they were losing land. They were, they were not losing. But what you see when you chart land loss uh, in the Chesapeake over time, and a number of academic studies have, have remarked on this, is that mid-19th century, right around 1850, there is a point of inflection where something changed, where what had been slow um, and very incremental uh, erosion suddenly started to tick up and it, it really started to accelerate. And it's at that point that many of the islands, and there used to be 40 or more of them in the Chesapeake that were inhabited, began to lose population. That's when people recognized that they weren't long for the world where they were, and they started to, to make for the mainland. And there are a host of islands that are, have storied names around the Chesapeake and lost communities, Holland Island, Jane's Island, Sharps Island, or dozens. Um, that process has continued to accelerate. Uh, throughout the 20th century, it, it, it Began moving at a gallop, and now it's it's at moving at a breakneck pace. Mm. So, yeah, Tan German do do ascribe their problem to erosion, simple erosion, and nothing more. Uh, and, and erosion may be the single biggest symptom of what's occurring, but erosion is not uh, divisible from from the forces that are propelling it. Yeah. yeah. You know, erosion is not a separate and distinct problem from climate change. They're all part of a bundle. Yeah. And, you know, the, the people there, I'd like to kind of follow up on that as far as what their uh, reaction is, what their position is. Um, you know, we live in this uh, country and society where there is, you know, the climate change denial phenomenon going on where people don't want to believe this science. Um, and I, I know that the people there on Tangier um, kind of align with that that thinking. So what what is their reaction when people try to explain the science of, of climate change and sea level rise? I think that they're uh, a bit frustrated by the insistence of those of us on the outside to keep on coming back to, to that subject because I think they're now at the, at the point where they don't care what's causing it. it and, and, and really... <laughs> It's easy to understand how yeah. really doesn't matter at this point. What we have is a you know slow motion natural disaster that's getting less slow motion all the time, and um, it's uh, it's a bit of an academic argument you know, as as to whether it's erosion or sea level rise that's you know that's bringing it about. The fact is, they need help. They need it. If they're going to get it. They need it now. Yeah, and uh, so I, th I think they're a bit frustrated by. By the debate itself, you know, regardless of the cause, this is what's happening to their land, to their home, what's been their home for generations, and their livelihoods. And so, what what's gonna what's gonna happen here? Um, so, and, and I think the population is not lockstep in its view towards climate change and denying it necessarily. I, there are some folks who flat out don't buy it. See this strictly. As, in terms of erosion. There are some folks who acknowledge that climate change, you know, they can see the signs that it's occurring. They can see sea level rise, but they do not uh, buy the notion that there's a human, you know, that man's hand plays a role in it. Mm. You know, Tangier is, is uh, as I mentioned before, a biblically literalist. It's pretty close to a theocracy of old school Christians. And, um, most of them raised as old school Methodists. And when I say old school, I mean old school. This is not your mainland Methodism. <clears throat> um, and so that, you know, they, uh, they see the natural world as, uh, as divine and as something 
that we puny humans are incapable of really messing with. You know, this is a work of God, and and you know we lack the wherewithal to mess with it, but so much, and mm-hmm. uh, and so that's that's kind of at the heart of uh, of of the uh, skepticism on Tantra, I think. Well, you spent a lot of time there, and you spent a lot of time with a number of these individuals, right? And and a lot of time got very close to them um, and uh, friendly friends with them. So, what's it what's it like, you know, becoming good friends with the person, spending a lot of time with them, having a lot of respect for them, knowing that they're incredible people. Uh, the 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 watermen uh, these these are watermen that have a great knowledge of the water and and they're 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 good people so yeah what's it like then um having them not kind of be willing to embrace science on this or um just not kind of open their mind to that well i mean i i i disagreed with them and 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 they knew it uh, okay you know we uh neither uh they or nor me uh nor i ever attempted to uh, to mask our, our rather, you know divergent views, <clears throat> but but you hit the nail on the head. They are uh, there are people who live a uh, a tough and and uh, in, in enviable in many ways lives life. Uh, who whom I really did come to to respect and admire over my time on Tangier and and. Uh, and many of whom I consider friends and, and will for the rest of my life. I'm sure we, uh, we were able to uh, get past any, any disagreements we had because they didn't matter to what created, you know, the, the, the bond between us in the first place. And um, it, uh, I think it is possible to, differ politically stridently mm-hmm. with someone and not demonize them. It's it's something that we as a country <laughs> kind of losing losing some grip on, but uh, but I think it's important to be able to to, to see uh, people as people and, mm-hmm. and not as uh, just a bundle of uh, political stands. And yeah. so that Tangierman who live in and depend on this water to a degree that most of us can't even imagine, uh, choose to disagree with the scientific community on what's causing that water to, to become threatening to them, um, is, uh, uh, you know, it's a curiosity. It's part of what makes the story compelling. Um, but in the end it's, it's also, uh, a bit of a who cares because what what really matters is that they are out there on the water. They, they are threatened by the very water that has sustained them now. And that, you know, that, uh, what's causing that terribly ironic dilemma, um, is almost beside the point. Yeah. Except, except once you're away from Tangier, you recognize that this is the canary in the coal mine and that we're soon to have, this situation replayed hundreds, if not thousands of times, just on the American coastline. Yeah. Well, I think that, that's another awesome uh, thing about the book and the fact you, you went to Tangier is this is kind of a leading, leading edge of climate change really impacting uh, a community, um, a neighborhood in America. I mean, there's been places where these big hurricanes have come and hit and they've been fueled by climate change. You've got some communities in Alaska, right, where they're having to, to move folks. But, I mean, it, it doesn't really get any more front line than, than Tangier Island uh, when, it, when it comes to climate impacts. Um, I wanted to ask you more about, about um, the Waterman side of this because, you know, you're, you've spent time there. You know the bay. I, I know Chesapeake Bay, but not everybody that might be listening or watching this really knows about the Waterman of Chesapeake Bay. So could you kind of – and they're a special breed, right? Um, and, uh, and so if you could kind of describe for, for folks what, what a Chesapeake Bay Waterman is, especially the ones that are really out there um, – on Tangier, the other islands, uh, and so forth. Yeah. Well, the, the, the phrase waterman, which you really don't hear outside of the Chesapeake, refers to a, uh, 
a person, man or woman, who makes his or her living uh, fishing up more than one kind of seafood. So in the case of Tim Sherman, the economy's long been sustained by the Chesapeake Bay blue crab in the summer, oysters in the winter, and for some islanders, fish kind of the year round, depending on what's running. Uh, and so you've got, uh, you've got a fleet on Tangier of, of uh, very small boats, some wood, some glass, uh, probably most wood still at this point, uh, that range in size from 20 to 45 feet, say. So we're talking little boats. Uh, they're crewed by one or two people. And these guys, these boats go out, leave the harbor every morning well before dawn, hours before dawn, and uh, either pull up crab pots, which are, despite the name, not pots at all. They're, they're uh, cubic. Uh, like a cage. Wire mesh cubes, yeah, about two feet to a side. It's, it's a trap. And uh, crabs can swim in into them, but can't easily find their way back out. And uh, the, uh, depending on what kind of crabber you are, either a hard crabber, who fishes up uh, the kind of crabs that you would have at a, at a backyard crab boil, say, or that whose meat winds up in, in the region's famed crab cakes, um, that person goes out and is just trying to catch a whole, as many crabs as possible. He's allowed to catch up to 47 bushels a day of, of crabs. Uh, or you're a peeler crabber, and in, in that case, you, you fish up far fewer crabs. You catch far fewer. And what you're looking for is a crab about to molt, about to go to shed its exoskeleton, uh, which it must do like many insect species in order to grow. And if you snatch a newly molted crab out of the water within a few hours, its new shell will not harden. And you wind up with soft shell crab, a delicacy up and down the East Coast. Uh, so those two kinds of crabbers are at work on Tanger in, in the summer, and, and the the season generally goes from mid March until early early October, and uh, and as soon as it's over, then Tangiermen take those same boats and re-rig them for oyster dredging, and they go out on the wild oyster rocks all up and down the Chesapeake, and uh, and they they dredge, they drag what looks like a lawnmower bag along the bottom. And, uh, and scoop up tons of oysters and dump them out on deck and then pick through them, find the, you know, the, pick the good shells, the, the good oysters from the empty shells and throw the detritus back overboard. And, uh, and those two fisheries sustain the island's economy along with a little bit of tourism. You know, the, the Chesapeake is a, uh, it's an unusual body of water. It's, 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 it's both big and intimate because it's 200 miles north to south. Uh, and about 30 miles wide at its at its widest point. So it's it, there are relatively few places in the bay. You've got to get way down into the lower bay before uh, you reach that point where you can't see land on the other side. You know, if especially if you're in a in a boat in the middle of, of the bay. But uh, and and it's a relatively shallow body of water. It averages 21 feet deep. But all of that uh, makes it a particularly challenging place to work on the water because uh, shallow water builds waves very quickly. Mm. The winds, the, the bay shape is is almost perfectly engineered to guarantee that, that waves will build. Uh, <laughs> and so you have, the weather can turn from slick cam, as they say on Tangier, which is glassy smooth, to uh, you know, four or five foot seas in the space of a couple of hours. It can mm. come up fast and and these guys are in little boats these are not the big deadliest catch kind of crabbing boats that you're used to seeing on tv these are these are chesapeake bay dead rises and bar cats which are age-old designs um, yeah you've got a great uh you know drawing of one on the on the cover there people can see a it's photo, a photo of a tangerman in a bar cat and yeah. he's doing something unusual in that he's potting crab potting in a bar cat which you don't see many people do but so it's a very small boat for that. Very low, very low sides, right? So they can pull yes. those pots out and everything. That's yeah, right. yeah. It's arranged so that the, the bow <clears throat> stays up high and can cut through waves, but the the stern is super low, so you don't have to pull a pot up. You know, you're pulling a hundred. You're pulling. If you have a big license, four hundred and twenty-five pots up a day, and, and you know, extra foot of freeboard if if you 
at a higher stern would take its toll on you. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's it's uh, you know the the book is it's very much a story about uh, I mean the crab the crabs are, play a central role here in the story the crabs and the oysters right it's kind of you've got Tangier Island you have these people you have the crabs the oysters the bay the water and it's just all. It's all this very obviously symbiotic relationship, and I, I just again as as being from that area, loved the deep dive into all those specific parts of it. You know, like I just you learn a ton about crabs if uh, you know if you didn't know that already. Um, so it it gives you a whole new appreciation. I imagine um, you know you learned learned a ton um, about crabs out there doing this. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was pretty ignorant going in, and uh, so every day was going to school for me. It was, it was fantastic. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, there's always big headlines every year about how's the how's the health of the the Chesapeake Bay, the blue crab population this year. How are they doing compared to where the scientists want them to be? And uh, I think they've done a pretty good job managing. The restrictions to where it's a it's a sustainable population at the moment. Um, I'm I'm putting question marks on the end of all these. I'd like I like to hear what you you have to say. Of course, a lot of the watermen want to have less restrictions. They want to be able to go do more. Um, but I, it seems like the the fisheries being managed in a way that's got some stability and reliability to the population. Yeah, for, for I think that uh, charted over uh, in terms of trends, that's definitely true. The yeah. uh, you know the the Virginia's lagged behind Maryland and and regulations traditionally. Uh, it's been slow to, to declare moratoriums in parts of the bay and, and outlaw certain types of of, uh, of crabbing, for instance, that Maryland's been down with for a long time. But but they're both pretty much in sync now, and uh, and so you see generally a a much healthier crab population than you did say back in the. In the 80s to mid 90s when there were times when the species seemed poised at the brink of extinction you know Oof. crab it was it was a scary time and you had you know especially the female the, the sook population was had had disappeared and uh you uh you know one of the one of the weird uh just facts about the blue crab is that because of it, it it's migratory patterns most of the crabs caught in Maryland waters are males or jimmies, and most of the crabs, you know, 75% or better caught in Virginia waters are females. So you've got this, you know, you've got this strange uh, difference, mm -hmm. geographic difference in what's being caught. But generally speaking, uh, the crab's holding its own. The last few years have been really good uh, for the crabbers. Um, part of that is that the state's making sure that everybody's a lot more careful about how they and where they catch the crabs, I think. Um, and part of that uh, may be a simple function of the fact that there are fewer crabbers. That, you know, but each year there are fewer crabbers. Uh, uh, Tangier and Smith Island, Maryland, are the only two inhabited islands, you know, offshore islands left in the Chesapeake at this point. Both used to be 100% devoted to, to crabbing. Tangier pretty much still is. Smith, there are no crabbers left. There are a handful. Wow. You know, the population there is bottomed out. Total population on Smith now is 250. Uh -huh. Down 1,400 in the 30s. Uh, so it's about half the size of Tangier and falling fast. <clears throat> You've got um, crabbing communities all around the edge of the bay that have, have seen their their veterans die off or retire. And, uh, and the mantle has not been picked up by a, by a new generation. And mm -hmm. in Tangier, you see the same thing happening. I mean, you've got a population in free fall, partly because the young people there have watched their fathers break their backs every day on what's a, you know an uncertain and dangerous line of work. And um, at least since satellite TV arrived on the island, they've come to see, you know, there are a lot easier ways to make a living mm -hmm. uh, or mainland. And uh, so with rare exceptions, on graduating from the K through 12 school on Tangier, kids decamp for the military or for college, and they don't come back. So, uh, so you know, the the best friend to the Chesapeake Bay blue crab may over time prove to be uh, the the slow die out of 
people willing to catch them. Hmm. Interesting. It'll be that'll be interesting to see because there's still a great demand, <laughs> I think, for crab. Um, you know, people people love it. Um, you know, but it's, you know uh, that, that sadly, Travis, that demand is being met uh, even at some restaurants that build themselves as as inexorably linked to the bay, to the Chesapeake culture. Um, that you know that that demand is being met with with farm crab meat, pasteurized crab meat that's being imported, and in fact, it is. We go in the grocery store and and look this summer at what's you know what's for sale in the refrigerated meat locker of of your your local uh, local supermarket. Examine the packaging very closely. You'd swear at first glance that it's straight from the Chesapeake Bay. You got to read the fine print to realize no, it's from the Philippines or it's from Vietnam. It's a yeah, a lot from Southeast Asia, right? Yeah, yeah true. We'll continue to eat crab. Now, it doesn't taste anything like the Chesapeake Bay blue crab. And and folks from Maryland and Virginia who know how blue crab ought to taste and how crab cake ought to taste will be able to tell the difference immediately. But most tourists to Baltimore, for instance, they go to a restaurant, they have no idea what, a, what yeah. how it's supposed to taste. And with pasteurized crab, it's still it's not it's, it's better than just about anything else. You know, I mean, uh, it's, sure. it's not it's not that tangy, sweet, that weird combination uh, that a Chesapeake Bay blue crab brings to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, the other, uh, the other critter there, the oysters. You know, uh, the oyster population is, I think, like at one percent of its historic high in the Chesapeake Bay. I think there's some success stories in little pockets along some different rivers. You know, the Rappahannock, where they're successfully kind of uh, getting the oysters going, and they're they're doing some nice uh, sales <laughs> to restaurants and they're getting pretty popular. But yeah. uh, what about, what about the folks on Tangier and, and getting oysters? I mean, I think that's a, that's not the same situation population wise as the crab. No. Uh, you know, the, back in the, again, in the eighties, early nineties into the early aughts of the new century, uh, the oyster appeared to be pretty much done in the Chesapeake Bay. I mean, uh, it had been notoriously overfished through the 19th and first half of the 20th century. I mean, brutally overfished. The, mm-hmm. the rock scraped barren, you know, nothing left. It was a slash and burn uh, approach to, uh, to fishery. And uh, on top of that, right behind that overfishing, you had the introduction of two uh, parasites into the you know two diseases of the oyster that that pretty much finished what man had started you had, um, something that was called msx the x because for years scientists couldn't figure out what the heck it was <laughs> and, you know, something that's been nicknamed dermo and they're they're both uh nasty little microscopic beasties that uh that just uh, eventually kill the oyster but they also render its meat very unpalatable. You wouldn't want to eat a oyster that's infected, and um, and the, you know the the rate of infection in on Virginia rocks was like ninety six percent. Wow! Back in the late nineties, it was terrible, and it how it didn't seem possible that that the species could bounce back, but through incredible management, and and you got to give the Virginia Marine Resources Commission and its scientific. Um, associates real real credit here uh they they limited uh public access to the rocks they gave the species time to to develop um uh, resistance to to its uh to the parasite problem and uh and the oyster is back not only in the rappahannock but out in the open bay i, I went out oystering uh on, on a couple of rocks uh, and uh their oysters are big and healthy and uh, and delicious, and you know you, that. Thankfully for the oyster, uh, you've got relatively few watermen out there trying to harvest. Uh, yeah. Aquaculture has become business. A lot of oysters now are farmed, but but in terms of going for the wild oyster, you have you have fewer watermen to begin with, and then you've got the fact that uh, whereas a, a waterman can go out, especially a peeler crabber. In his boat and and fish for crab by himself, 
to, to go oystering, you need a minimum of two people aboard the boat. So you've got fewer boats in the water. You have the mm. same number of and occupying fewer boats. And, um, and so that limits how much damage, uh, you know, that population of watermen can do from year to year. And the state's very strict about uh, giving each rock one or two years of rest between seasons at which, it, you know, people have access to it. And, uh, and so far, so good. It's uh, a, a fishery that everyone wrote off as gone for good is now actually producing a significant portion of the average tangier waterman's income each year. Hmm. So, and oh, that's, that's just right. the last four years. I mean, it's very recent. Yeah. I mean, the oysters are uh, have such filtering capacity that um, if, if they could really bounce back and uh, were managed in the right way, they could be a great force for cleaning up that water in the bay, yeah. you know. Yeah, I'm um, not sure what they do with nitrogen, but uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, clarity at least. Um, a couple other questions here. So, uh, g- going back to your time on the island, how how much time did you actually spend living on the island? I was there for 14 months. 14 months. Um, just was- from a from a personal perspective, what what was that like? Uh, taking a good chunk of your life and and living in this place. It was uh, it was wonderful. Really, I mean, I, I miss the the pace of my days there. I miss the simplicity of my days there. I mean, uh, you know, there, there's no cell phone service. Nobody drives a car. You get around on bicycle or scooter or golf cart. I, I went everywhere by bike. Uh, and what I miss most about it, I think, is that because there's no cell phone service, almost every contact Every transaction you have with another human being is face-to-face. Mm. And so you, most of your contacts occur serendipitously. You're out on the road going someplace. You run into somebody you know. You stop and you talk. And that's how that's how your day goes. So that's how your contacts are made. And, uh, and I just found that really um, I, I, very easy to, to adapt as a lifestyle. That was there's an authenticity to it that I really uh, came to love. Yeah. And, and it's you know, a, I'm back on here. We are talking on Skype and you know, I'm on my cell <laughs> hours each day. And you know, I, I do miss the in-person immediacy of the place. And, yeah. and they're wonderful people. And yeah, it's, it's nice to be able to decipher their accent, accent over time. You know, they've got, mm. they've got famed accent that to an untuned ear is can be very tough to to parse and uh so you know uh, added to that was the uh, the longer i was there the easier i was able to to actually communicate (laughs) it's nice the accent and also just different expressions and and words for things and phrases so you throw that in there and it's like another language it is. It is. And if you were to listen to two Tangierman talking on marine radio, say, where they're not <laughs> worried about having to make themselves understood to an outsider, good luck picking two two words out of ten. You know. Yeah. Layered on top of that, and the old words and phrases is the Tangier tendency to say exactly the opposite of what you mean. So uh, you may you may be able over time to figure out what the words are, but then get the meaning completely wrong. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And I, I definitely can see uh, the beauty in that simpler life, right? The less digital life, the more outdoors life, the more human contact, less of this hustle and bustle and crazy stuff and just kind of living with those simpler priorities. Sound, sounds awesome. Um, so what is going to happen to the island here? You know, we know what nature will do, but... Is there any reality that the government's going to step in and build a seawall or do something like that? Um, you know, one of the lines that jumped out at me in the book is like, they said, we don't, you know, somebody said, we don't care if ISIS comes and builds a wall. We just want a, a, want a seawall built around our island to save this place. But what's what's well, the reality well, of something like that happening? That, that, was, that was Lottie Moore who said that. Uh, you know, I... You've got a declining population. Headcount's now about 460. The 
best estimate, and this is strictly a, a, a wild ballpark estimate from the Corps of Engineers to build, to rebuild the island in the style that would would buy at the time it's looking for. You're looking at a price tag of 800 million, mm. probably, and, and up. So, uh, you know, that comes to roughly, you know, $2 million ahead. Um, so the, the question, you've got a couple of questions you have to, you have to mull. Number one, as a prospect for saving a community, is this good precedent to spend that kind of money saving teenage year? Because again, we are going to be facing this situation hundreds, if not thousands of times in the, in the very few decades to come. Next 20 years, the situation is going to be replayed elsewhere. And um, I don't know the, the answer to that question. I know I, I know I would love to see Tangier saved, but I think that we have to develop a, uh, before we decide to do it, we have to develop a rubric, uh, a methodology for deciding, okay, what towns are we going to save and which are we going to surrender because we cannot save them all. That's mm -hmm. a gift. We don't have the money. We don't have the time. We don't have the technology. And so we're gonna we're gonna walk away from some. So while I'd love to see this unique little piece of Americana saved, uh, I think that rubric is the first step. We have to do that. Um, could it be saved? Yes. The, the sure. I mean, the Corps of Engineers and the state of Maryland uh, are investing hundreds of millions of dollars, even as we speak, in restoring Poplar Island, mm. which is an uninhabited island, once inhabited, but will be uninhabited uh, from this point going forward up in the north, you know, the middle bay. And uh, when that is that project is finished, uh, Poplar will be returned to about the dimensions it had during the Civil War. Uh, before the project was undertaken in the mid-90s, Poplar had dwindled to, I think, less than five acres. It was just a tiny little wisp of, of a marsh. And, and what the state and the feds will get out of that investment is habitat. So it won't be a home for people. It'll be a habitat for uh, migratory waterfowl, marine, marine wildlife. Uh, now, there is a possibility that if Tangier, even if Tangier were judged a bad deal in terms of uh, a town to save that its value as habitat could pro you know, could propel a project to save it or at least save something you know it may not save the town but it could save over time the island uh, because we're right now we've lost a lot of island habitat in the Chesapeake over the last century and this is a pretty as as pieces go this is a big piece and um, it is not only a landing spot for birds, but it, it creates a, a, a lee in which underwater grasses can grow and flourish. And without those underwater grasses, of course, all manner of marine species, most notably the blue crab, can't flourish. And so, you know, you lose Tangier, you're not only losing 275 houses and homes for 460 people, you're losing uh, in, in kind of a uh, cascading failure, the yeah. homes for all sorts of other animals as well, uh, animals that we hold pretty dear. So yeah. you look at it, you take away the human element, look at it in terms of habitat for wildlife. Um, oddly, it may be easier to justify that kind of expense. Hmm. It's yeah, and I imagine uh, I can imagine the reaction to of Tangier residents to uh, you know they see this island up north getting built up for for birds, and here their island for people is disappearing. You know they don't I mean, they don't take kindly to that. They don't. You want to get Tangiermen excited? Just say two words: Poplar Island. Oh. <laughs> um, and man, management of the Chesapeake Bay is a, an incredible challenge it's complex it involves so many entities and so many issues and uh it's 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 incredible um i, I just learned a ton more talking to you about this so last question is um your book came out last year i think um yeah, august middle, 7th okay um yeah and i know you've done some uh, much higher profile interviews than this one but um what's what's kind of been your your reaction what's been the main points of interest and and uh, so forth to your book well 
it, it, it seems to uh, it seems to resonate with uh, readers in kind of concentric circles. You've got the the immediate interest in the Chesapeake, and and so it's it's achieved some pretty good traction around the bay itself. Then you've got the wider interest in in climate change and you know the portent of disaster that this little town represents. Um, you know, the, I think the most uh, the 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 reaction that I I guess I had the greatest trepidation about uh, uh, was on Tangier itself because I knew full well uh, that pretty much every islander was going to be reading the book. And, uh, and I also had resolved that the first place I would do a reading of the book would be on Tangier after the book came out. So, so four days after it was published, by which time a significant portion of the population had already torn through it, uh, <laughs> I went back with my fiance to Tangier. And, uh, and my daughter was, was a little worried about me going because she thought it was going to end like the wicker man. But I got back onto the island and, and did a reading and then did a Q&A session. Uh, this was all in, in the school's auditorium. On the same night that a, um, a very prominent and popular boat captain uh, was having a birthday party, and so I got a great turnout. <laughs> On a night I shouldn't have expected to have anyone show up, and I was very, very happy about that. We got to the Q&A, and instead of asking questions, one tangierman after another stood up and kind of offered a, offered testimony about me and the book or about Amy uh, yeah, it was almost like being in church, and there were tears shed. It was incredibly moving and, and wonderfully gratifying, and a, kind of an electric moment. And uh, so it's uh, it doesn't get better than that. I mean, the, the books achieved. Uh, I mean, critics have been more generous than they've been generous beyond my dreams. It's, uh, but I think that was the single most amazing moment of post publication life that I've had. Was yeah there in that school auditorium i can i can un understand that um i again i was just really uh blown away when i when i read it being a maryland native spending so much time around the bay working in the uh environmental restoration side of things um being such a, a fan <laughs> uh being uh, have, having such a love for the chesapeake bay um the depth that you went to and the color and life that you bring to it all. I, I really uh, appreciate the book a lot um, and I enjoy it a lot. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad for the opportunity to talk to you and, and appreciate your time uh, talking to me today. Oh, well, thank you so much, Travis. It's, uh, I appreciate it. I'm right back at you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to talk about You're in the water loop. <laughs> Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.